And uh, my story is that I came to faith when I was about 13 or 14. Um, I was an incredibly lonely kid um, and didn't like myself much and as a result did not treat other people very well either. And I can remember getting to this place of deep and profound loneliness and feeling like, um, like I didn't have a friend in the world. And I remember I'd started to hang out with this different crew, um, some of whom are here tonight, and they talked about Jesus with, with a fire in their eyes and with this deep passion. And it was kind of intoxicating. I think what was more intoxicating was people who actually liked me. Um, but I started to hang out with these folks. And then after hanging out with them for a few weeks, I remember one night, I just had the sense um, to step outside the front door of my house and begin walking. And I started to walk, and I just started to talk to this invisible presence called God. Um, and, um, and to pour out all these pains, and to pour out all the stuff that was on my heart, this deep sense of loneliness, this deep sense of isolation, and I'd never heard God speak back to me. But there was a sense that I'd never been heard so well before in my life. You know, Mother Teresa, they asked her once, they said, when you pray, what do you say? She said, nothing. And they said, well, what does God say? And she said, nothing. But it's this, this communion that is deeper than words that happened there. And there was this realisation for me that Jesus was real. And I started going along to some jump-around church services um, and, uh, and to some different conferences with David and Ingrid. Um, and we would jump around and we would sing songs. One of my favourite songs we used to sing, the lyrics were, Crushing the devil's head. I've drawn the line and I believe what Jesus said, that I'm crushing the devil's head. Yeah. I mean, come on. Who doesn't want to come to Jesus with a chorus like that? And you can get more of that on Blueprints 2008 EP. <laughs> Live at the front. Um, but you know, these hypey rallies, and I remember feeling the tangible presence of Jesus Christ come in a way that I could not explain. I'm like, whoa, God is here, and we'd have tingles in our heads and our hands and our feet, and then we'd inappropriately pray for people of the opposite sex and get separated, um, and it was just a wild, wild time. But God was real, and I remember there was the speaker at the time, um, a guy, uh, actually I shouldn't give names, a guy who was speaking there, and who greatly inspired me with this Jesus, and that Jesus was real, and Jesus could could transform this loneliness and this pain that I felt inside. And, um, and I went up the front, you know, and I went up for every healing request and every altar call, you know. It's like, I think there's someone here with a sore foot, like, yep. <laughs> I think there's someone here with a, a headache. Yeah, I'm there, mate. Pray for me, lay hands. Like, every last thing, it was like every altar call. I'm there getting born again and born again again and again and again and again. Um, and, um, and it was just huge. And then I remember, though, about a year into this, suddenly the, the hype kind of began to subside. And I fell into this place where I'm like, God, where the heck have you gone? Like, where are you? Who can relate to experiences like this? Some people. And those who haven't will. Uh, and you, you come to this moment where you're like, God, where are you? For so long you were so close and so present. And now I feel like you have just totally left me. And so often for people who have just come to faith, this is something that happens. It's like the rubber meets the road and the cost suddenly outweighs the amount of joy and endorphins you feel jumping around singing um, Hillsong United. <laughs> 
And I remember a, a, a few months into this um, feeling like totally downcast, and I went to this other conference, and the same speaker was there. And I was like, oh, it's the same guy. He'll know what to do. And I must have come across like such a crazy person. I like, went up to this guy. I'm like, I've lost Jesus. Where is he? He's gone. You said he would be my best friend. And he was just like, looked at me. He's like, oh, I don't know. And, and for a kid who was like 13 or 14, it was this deep sense of like isolation and pain that this God who had transformed my life was suddenly just seemed to be completely missing. And we live in this age of profound disillusionment with Jesus and profound disillusionment with the church. Um, But as Bishop Justin says, which I really love, he says, you're disillusioned because you had an illusion to begin with. You're disillusioned because you had an illusion to begin with. And me coming into faith, I had an illusion about what Jesus was for and what he came to do. I had an illusion about the salvation that he had bought me, that the salvation he bought me was about me feeling better when it was so much deeper than that. And some of us are disillusioned by Jesus because we came in on one set of promises and those promises haven't actually kind of been delivered because that's not who Jesus was. And that is kind of the experience of the Jews, the Israelites, over and over again in the Scriptures. is thinking they know who Jesus is, they know who God is and what he will do, as Alana preached so incredibly last week. Who did you come out to see? What Jesus did you come out to see? And over and over again, we find that the person they thought they were coming to see was not who he is at all. So what I want to look at today is what kind of saviour is Jesus. And we're going to start with the uh, scripture, uh, which is from John 12, 12 to 19. Close your eyes if you want to visualise this or anything. Says the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, There's nothing we can do. Look. Everyone has gone after him. So we have this passage where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And it is, it's tempting to think of this as a really nice and sweet kind of moment, particularly if you're someone who likes musicals and watched a lot of Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> then in your mind, this is all, Hosanna, 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 Anyway... Too much singing in this talk today. But um, he's coming in, and actually this was a revolutionary moment. The palm frond was the symbol of Jewish resistance to the occupation of the Roman Empire. So this is not a nice, sweet moment, but this is like, this is like the confrontation 
between the anti-racism guys and the white supremacists that happened in the States a few months ago. This is fiery. There is swearing going on. There are rocks being lobbed. There is passion. There is pain. And these people see him coming in and they go, will you be the ones to liberate us from the occupation of the Roman Empire? They weren't thinking like you and I do about some kind of one day going off to a spiritual place in the sky. They were thinking, right now, is this the one who will pick up a sword, mount a horse, and carve down our oppressors? It was loud, it was aggressive, and there was the excitement of an occupied, marginalised people waiting for liberation. And so I want to draw three things from this today, three things that I think... Maybe we're looking for the wrong saviour, or not the saviour who Jesus came to be. The first is something important about this narrative we're seeing here is that this happened at the time of the Passover. And so the Exodus 12 narrative, where the Passover initially happened, went like this. You've all probably seen the Prince of Egypt, right? We know that the Israelites were downcast and oppressed, that apparently they were being made to build the pyramids. Um, And they were oppressed by Egypt. And for this one particular moment in Exodus 12, Yahweh says to them, what you are to do is you are to kill a lamb and you are to take the blood of that lamb and you are to wipe it on the doorposts of your homes. And what I am going to do is I am going to send the angel of death over Egypt and anywhere that that angel sees blood on a doorpost, they are going to ignore it. But anywhere that blood isn't, they are going to kill the firstborn son of that family. And so it happens, and they come through. And so for the Jews, when they are thinking about Passover, they they are remembering the time where God liberated them miraculously from the power of Egypt. So for the Jews, the Passover was a reminder that God had liberated them by shedding the blood of their oppressor. The other thing you've got to know is that the day Jesus chooses to come into town was in the preparation of Passover was the day when they would prepare the Paschal Lamb. So what this means is that each year in the Passover, they would reenact what happened in Exodus 12 a couple of thousand years ago. And so what they would do on this particular day is they would select a lamb together And in a couple of days' time, they would kill that lamb. So interestingly, Jesus chooses to ride into town on the day they choose the lamb that will be sacrificed on their behalf. Some of the stuff's too good to write, eh? So they see Jesus coming in triumph, and they assume that he is coming to liberate them the same way that Yahweh did before. That now we're going to spill some blood, Now the firstborn child of every one of these Roman bastards is going to bite it. And that's who they see coming in. But what they don't realise in this narrative is that Jesus is not the Yahweh character. Jesus is the Lamb. And they miss the point. And ultimately, two days later, Jesus would be crucified on the same day when that Passover Lamb would be crucified, and as he hung upon the cross, all around Jerusalem, Passover lambs were being slaughtered to remember the Passover. That's why we have Isaiah 53, 7, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before shearers, he did not open his mouth. So Jesus is doing something profoundly different here, eh? Like quite different to their old 
notion of liberation. He says, I will transform everything not by oppressing your oppressors or being more powerful than your oppressors, but by submitting to their oppression. I will not overcome this through redemptive violence, but through redemptive suffering on a cross. I will not save by further violence, but by absorbing that violence into myself willingly. The first thing we've got to understand around this time of year, if we ask what kind of saviour it is we follow, is that we follow a crucified saviour. We follow one who did not inhabit the power that overcomes and that kills firstborns, but the one who instituted a new way of grace where he said, I will take that upon myself. And I reckon that is so different from some of the attitudes we have today around how salvation and around how change happens. See, I feel like our culture does a lot of blame when something doesn't work out. You know, whenever there's like a a big incident that goes on, like the shooting that happened a, a few weeks ago in the Florida high school, and we begin with, isn't this tragic? And then inevitably the next day is, who can we blame? Well, it's clear you blame the person with the gun, but we have to look for someone else to blame. You know, a car careens off a cliff because its brakes didn't work. Day one, how tragic, a family died. Day two, who can we blame? How do we externalise the pain away from ourselves? We say the problem is the government. The problem is the culture. The problem is the patriarchy. The problem is the food industry. The problem is greed and selfishness. And we externalise away from ourselves over and over again. And all these things, all those things are true. The problem is the food industry. The problem is the patriarchy. The problem is greed and selfishness. But all of these things were true in the time of Jesus as well. All of these things were true, yet he did not set his eyes merely on changing attitudes, but realised that for this to stop, someone would have to pay the cost to interrupt the cycle of violence. And this has always been the case with anything that ever changes in the history of humanity is that someone goes as the sacrificial lamb and says, I will no longer blame the rest of the world, but take me. I will pay the cost. We worship a crucified saviour. Second point. To understand what this parade is about that Jesus is coming in on, we need to understand how it was that Caesar, the Roman ruler, would have been put into power. So what used to happen was that when um, it was believed that Caesar was the son of God, and, and so Caesar, when a new Caesar was to be, uh, have his coronation, what would happen is they would have a parade and they would put him on top of a horse or a chariot and they would ride him through the middle of a crowd and celebrate it. And then when he got to the end of that, they would grab a crown and they would place that crown upon his head. And then he would be lifted up and placed upon a throne And then finally, the best astrologers and astronomers in Rome would do some really handy work to make sure that whenever Caesar was going to be instituted, that there would be some kind of phenomenon in the skies or the cosmos that could go along with it so they could say, look, he is the son of God. Does any of this kind of sound a little familiar? Because what we have is Jesus rides into town on a donkey instead of a chariot. 
And then he takes a crown of thorns instead of a kingly crown. And then he is lifted up onto a cross instead of a throne. And then as he dies, the sky goes dark. And the men who put him on the cross say, truly, this was the Son of God. What a powerfully subversive thing the journey to the cross is, eh? That the whole time that people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and Son of God, and, and have mercy on us, that Jesus is not only heading to the cross, but he is critiquing the dominant empire of the time through his every action. That as Caesar came into town, all-powerful upon his white stallion, Jesus comes into town on a donkey, probably with a slight grin in the corner of his mouth, going, this is a good one, eh, Caesar? I bet you love this. (laughs) This entire narrative is a massive up yours to the Roman Empire. Even in his death, Jesus is mocking the powers. We see this again and again, this, this way that Jesus does this, particularly in John 6, where you get given these series of actions of how to deal with oppression. Some of you will have heard this stuff before, but it was said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, offer them your left cheek as well. And so what you would have is you'd have a, a slave owner, and their slave has disobeyed them, and they would, you'd present your right cheek to them, and they would hit the right cheek, and then you would present the left to them. And they had two options in this moment, one of which was to slap you with the backhand, which was deeply dishonourable in this time, or the other option was to step down. The power has transferred. The narrative has been flipped on its head. Another one of these, Roman centurions had this rule that they were allowed to ask any Jew to carry a backpack for them one mile. So Jesus says, when someone asks you to carry their backpack one mile, carry it two. The idea being that as this Israelite, followed by a Roman centurion, continues to walk past the mile, suddenly it switches from the Roman being like, carry my pack, to wait, give me back my pack. That the power has shifted again. We also have in Luke 6, we have the passage where Jesus says, he says, if someone asks for your tunic, give them your shirt as well. Well, all you wore was a tunic and a shirt. So suddenly, my oppressor is standing there holding my garments, and I am standing there naked. How does that make my oppressor look? And so we see that Jesus always is subverting and flipping the powers over and over and over again. I can remember a few years ago, um, Blueprint used to meet uh, in a space up the road above this live music venue, Bodega, where we met for a little while. And the, um, the manager there didn't like me very much. And um, had a, a fierce temper. And I can remember this one day where I went downstairs into the office where him and his staff were working. And, uh, and I said, listen, mate, it would be real good if you could just not park in our, park in our car parks. Like, you know, that would just be great. And all of a sudden it goes zero to a thousand. And you have never heard so many Fs and Cs thrown at one person in about a 30-second stretch. And for some reason, I just didn't feel, normally I'd feel freaked out by that, but I just had this moment of like, I wonder what would happen if I just sat down? (laughs) So he kept going, and I just walked over the corner and sat down in a chair. (laughs) And he just keeps going, and then eventually he just runs out of steam and goes back to his desk. And then I get up and leave, and he calls me ten minutes later apologising. 
You know, there's this bizarre way of Jesus where the power structure is flipped on its head. Where, where we do not need to overpower the oppressor or the abuser in order to get our own back. But there is another way which undoes oppression. Man, Jesus is a good saviour, eh? And a smart saviour too. We worship a subversive saviour who turns the narratives on the head over and over again. And so often we are tempted to fight fire with fire. But Jesus says, no, don't fight fire with fire. Fight it with peace. Fight it with grace and I will turn it on its head and redeem it. We worship a subversive saviour. Point three. In the middle of this passage, John quotes an old prophecy from Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9, which talks about this vision of of liberation that the Israelites are waiting on. And it says this, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is lowly, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, there's two words in this which make sense to us, righteous and victorious. And lowly is not a common set of words that we put together, that you can be victorious and you can be powerful, but you can be lowly and you can be humble and you can be meek. We worship a lowly saviour. We worship a lowly saviour. Isaiah 53 says this, it says, He had nothing that would attract us to him. Jesus had nothing that would attract us to him. Jesus was probably an ugly guy. There was nothing about him, there was not his charisma, there wasn't his charisma or his appearance that drew people to him. But it was that he proposed a different way and that he was filled with the Spirit of God and he knew his Father. He had nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of grief and deep sorrow. Imagine if any of us had that reputation. Scotty, he's not that good looking. He's always depressed, a man of sorrows. (laughs) No one would want to hang out with me. But this is what is said of our saviour, a lowly, ugly, unpopular saviour. And if we look across the parables Jesus uses to illustrate the coming of his kingdom, they're always about lowly things. They're never about powerful things. Widows looking for lost coins under their sofas. Little insignificant seeds buried deep in the ground. Yeast worked invisibly through a batch of dough. A feast where only the homeless the destitute, the discontent are invited. God has a special place in his heart for the old, the invisible, the insignificant, the ugly, the unpopular, and the lowly. Salvation is not through popularity or glamour. You can't put a profile picture up for this one. We worship the lowly saviour who does not defeat the powers by becoming more powerful than them, but who lays his life down under the violence to show that there is another way. We worship a lowly saviour. And this is the saviour that most of the people in this room say we've given our lives over to as we head into Easter weekend. So if we follow the way of Jesus, then we are called to be a lowly people. We are called to be a subversive people. We are called to be a crucified people. 
And recently this year I've been asking the question, what would the typical blueprinter look like in an ideal world? Like, what is the best outcome we could have of what people would say about the people in this community? And I think we should be lowly, not finding our identity in what we have, what we do, how we look, or what others say about us, but finding ourselves deep in Christ so that we can lay down our lives for anyone. Lowly in that we stop defending our patch and start giving our lives away freely. Absurdly loving, encouraging, and welcoming, we should be lowly and ugly like Jesus. We should be subversive, imagining creative alternatives to the great injustices we see around us, dramatising inequality and making a mockery of the system that is built on oppression until it begins to look like the kingdom of God. We should be crucified, not scapegoating or copping out on the pain of the world just as a result of a corrupt system, but standing up and saying, hear me, I will pay the cost. I will pay the cost. My hope is that we would become ugly, imaginative people who pay the cost. I think that would be a great reputation for us to have.